Well, we are in a short series on the Psalms of Ascents, otherwise known as Psalms 120 through 134 in your Bible, and this week we're on uh, Psalm 123. And as we've said previously, these psalms were sung by the people of God as they made their way to one of the great feast days of either Passover or Pentecost or Tabernacles, which is also sometimes called booths. And these songs uh, assume a way of life that is grounded in discipleship and pilgrimage. So discipleship uh, in that we are, are learning, and it is learning. It takes time to, to think and feel and walk in the ways of our God. It's not just mere head knowledge. It's learning to live like him because we are in relationship to him. We are literally united to uh, the God who made the heavens and the earth through Jesus, his son, and the power of the spirit. Those words seem so cheap in comparison to what that actually is. And when you think about who you are, for example, that's how you should think about yourself. So often in our times, you know, it's, it's how do you self-identify? I mean, that's everywhere, right? And what that means is how are you defining yourself? And in the Bible's way of thinking, that's, that's actually nonsensical because you're defined by something outside of you, someone other than yourself. You don't define yourself. God defines you. And what he has said about you is that you are his. You are his sons and daughters. You are his servants. You are united to him through his son in the power of the spirit. That is who you are. So when you think about who you are, that's what you should be thinking. And that's what leads us in our discipleship. But it's also a pilgrimage because we know our lives already belong to God. That's who we are, his sons and daughters. And we will soon see him face to face. It doesn't always feel like that, but ask any generation that's come before. You will soon see God face to face. We therein are are not supposed to be short-sighted people. We're supposed to live with the conviction that this life is not all there is, that there is much more life to come after we die and are no longer separated from our God. All those things are in play and under, uh, not undermine, but underground, they, they firm up what this psalm is all about. So again, we're Psalm 123. Let me read for us. To you, I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that is ancient and yet so relevant to our own times. We pray that this would be a good time of meditation for us as we work through your word and what the psalmist uh, was communicating through song and what the people of God sang together as they went to one of the great uh, holy days. Lord, this is a simple holy day for us, but still we pray that you'd be present with us and minister to us in. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name and the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, if you were paying attention to the language of this psalm, the words eyes, hands, mercy, 
and contempt uh, in some form or fashion are featured in this psalm. And with Hebrew, that, that's always important when you see words repeated or featured like that. And so that's where I'm going to focus my time this morning on the words eyes, hands, mercy, and contempt. And that's why that's in the title of the sermon. So even though contempt actually shows up at the end of the psalm, I want to begin with that one because it's the reason the psalmist is writing. Now, we all know what contempt is. Contempt is a lack of respect for someone, but it's actually more than that. It's a feeling of hatred or even disgust for someone. So when you have uh, contempt for someone, you know, it feels natural, maybe even right, to disrespect them to look down on them. You have scorn for them, as the psalmist says there. You sneer at them. Maybe you even hate their very existence. And we all know what contempt is, of course, from our own personal experience of it, you know, both as the ones having contempt for someone else and also probably having received it yourself. A few of us, however, have ever really had to endure uh, the, con- the kind of contempt I think the psalmist has in mind here. You know, we tend to think of contempt in terms of our individual relationships. So if, you know, someone has contempt for me or, or for, for my work, well, he doesn't have to come to this church. I, you know, I, I might be offended by his contempt for me, but, you know, for the most part, I, I can shrug it off because it's more an annoyance or a frustration than anything else. If I come across a guy in Walmart, I just go the other way. And only once in my life, if, as I reflected upon this passage, have I actually really endured serious, sustained, unavoidable contempt. And even then, there were ways of mitigating it. But what happens when you can't? What happens when you can't shrug it off? What happens when the contempt isn't maybe among coworkers or family members or just somebody else in the school or whatever, but is part of the structure of the society you live in and it seemingly never ends. What then? Malcolm Gladwell in his podcast, Revisionist History, along with uh, Vernon Jordan, recounts stories about Donald Hollowell. He's the great African-American civil rights lawyer based in Atlanta in the 1950s and 60s. And he's, he's famous, for example, maybe you have remember his name or it sounds familiar to you because he was famous for getting Martin Luther King Jr. out of jail. Hollowell would sometimes do things during that time period, like remove the signs that separated whites and blacks on buses. And he recounted how, after doing this one time, a white woman once became hysterical because she realized the seat she was sitting in was still warm from a black person having sat in it. That's contempt. Or the time when Hollowell was in court and he stood to address the judge and the judge turned his chair completely around so he wouldn't have the indignity of being addressed by a black lawyer. Now think about that. One of the greatest symbols of justice in our culture, a supposedly impartial arbiter of judicial action, refused to even look at the man in his courtroom. That's contempt. And this contempt wasn't, you know, unique to one woman on a bus or a judge in some Georgia courtroom. It wasn't merely, you know, a personal disrespect between individual people like what I faced. It was across the board. I mean, everywhere you went, there it was. You know, a contempt squarely aimed at the Donald Hollowells of America. I use that example because that's similar to what the psalmist has in mind in this psalm. See, Israel was overrun and conquered 
so many times over the course of her history. The Egyptians, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Seleucids, the Romans. I mean, it's a long list. And the Jews were rarely, and it was really only for a very short time period of their history, they were rarely in the position to dictate terms to her neighbors. It was really just during the golden period of David and Solomon. Otherwise, she lived under a lot of systemic kind of culture-wide contempt from outside groups that had conquered them that made life very hard for her. That's why the psalmist tires of those who are proud or at ease and who look down upon them. And of course, this is exactly what can and does happen to God's people now all over the world. And, And contempt for God's people is on the rise. Now, as an aside, some of that contempt is actually justified. Because many American Christians or American churches act and speak just like the world and in turn have to die their deepest so-called convictions because of it. When the church looks like the world, we deserve to be ridiculed by the world. Now, some of that contempt is completely unjustified. Like what we see many of our brothers and sisters around the world enduring. And it becomes because the world hates the light. If the world hated Jesus, it's going to hate his people too who are faithful to him. Now, the temptation is to read this psalm and really the whole Bible merely in in spiritual, and I don't mean that pejoratively at all, but more so like non-bodily terms. That is, this sort of contempt or really, you can just think of this in any kind of suffering really, should affect me, should not affect me, excuse me, much at all. You know, we should just be able to endure it, which is, of course, ridiculous. Of course, it's difficult. You know, words, just think about words, like sticks and stones, can absolutely destroy you and permeate your mind and your heart and your body. You know, lots of Christians have wrongly believed that God simply wants you to endure, to grin and bear it like a good little soldier and act like everything is all right, because that's what they think faithfulness looks like. You know, smile, though your heart is breaking. But Psalms like this one say, no, that's not the case. Not at all. See, God is very concerned about your heart and your mind and your body and your circumstances and societal evils and injustices. God truly cares about what happens in his world because it's his That's why you cannot talk about salvation without talking both about atonement for sin and the resurrection of the body too. Why why would God do such a thing as resurrection if he did not care what happens to your body and the places that body shows up? But God doesn't just care about saving people from certain death. I mean, clearly he does, but he also cares about justice in this life and the next. That's why the law If you just follow the Old Testament, it's why the law moves from love your neighbor in the Old Testament to love your enemy in the New Testament. I mean, why would God command such a thing if he did not care about what actually happens to people in our everyday circumstances? So God does not. I mean, he cannot turn a blind eye to the brokenness of this world including the suffering his people endure. That's why when we do the pastoral prayer, we absolutely address, sometimes and just, you know, we we allude to it, the suffering you are going through. 
and why we lift these things before our God. Of course we would. He invites us to do this. He wants us to do this. So just take, for example, in Jesus's first sermon, which is found in Luke chapter four, he doesn't say, listen, y'all, I'm here to save your souls. Now, the way people often talk about the gospel and how it affects a person's life, that's what you would expect Jesus to say, but he doesn't. No, he quotes Isaiah 61 saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus wasn't being figurative here. He was addressing both spiritual and material concerns. And guess what his ministry looked like? So he forgave sins And he healed people's bodies, sometimes at the same time. He both said, today you will be with me in paradise, and he raised people from the dead. God is concerned about every last aspect of you, but not just you. He's concerned about justice, about making wrongs right, about our actual circumstances and the societies that shape those circumstances. How could he not, while still claiming that this is his world? It's why we are called then to be lights to this world, to be, in a certain sense, little embassies of God's kingdom pointing the world to the true light. And the thing about God is that he's patient in bringing justice. And that should blow our minds. It should blow our minds because he isn't like us. He doesn't instantly react in anger like we do when we're hurt. No, he wants even the very wicked to turn from their evil. And it's like what Augustine once said. He said, the Lord sees all evil and often keeps silent for he is long suffering and full of mercy. Yet he will not keep silent forever. And the psalmist knows all this. This psalm is about wanting God to act and waiting for him to do it. That's discipleship. The psalmist belongs to God. He knows him. He's God's servant. That's why he feels confident in calling him Yahweh. You see that with the all caps Lord in in your, your passage there. That's God's personal name. So the psalmist knows he's part of the covenant God made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, but he's tired and he's overrun. And he's at what feels like his limit because of the scorn but the proud and those who are at ease. And that's the powerful and the rich. That's the people who have rights or muscle or influence, who can get what they want in court or can shape the media against you or buy whatever they want or force you to give up your land to them. And those are all examples just straight from the Old Testament. Now, that could have been a foreign enemy, as it often was, or it could have been a wicked Jew who had amassed his wealth by exploiting the poor. And by the way, that was the typical way people got rich in Israel. Or it could have been a wicked king like Ahab who tried to and did take Naboth's vineyard, or even at times a good king like David. You know, we don't know exactly the context, but he's crying out because his very real life situation, like Donald Hollowell's, seemed hopeless. And yet he knows his only hope is with God. Well, that takes us to the word eyes. The psalmist says, 
To you who are enthroned in the heavens, I lift up my eyes. Now contrast this with Psalm 121 from a few weeks ago and the temptation to lift up our eyes to the hills. What God does the psalmist really serve? And that's a live question. It's a live question. The ones who are worshiped on the hills like Baal or the God who made the heavens and the earth. He's not looking to false gods. He's not looking to himself or his own inner strength. And those were, again, all very real temptations. No, like Joseph in Egypt, he's looking to the one who made the heavens and the earth, the one who rules over all things from his heavenly throne room. And this God, despite, despite the psalmist's current circumstances, which are not good, this God is the one he serves. And this is a really hard thing to square. See, we believe that God is not distant. Wow, it's who you're worshiping right now. He's not taken by surprise. He doesn't overlook things. The psalmist doesn't think he needs to catch God up to speed on, on current events. But in the moment, in the moment, it doesn't feel like any of that is true. The temptation is to look to the hills, to false gods, or maybe to start living like the people who seem to have a better life than we do, or to look to whatever or whoever can promise us comfort or whatever we think will actually alleviate our suffering. Or it's to take matters into our own hands and do something, anything, anything that will make things right. The psalmist is looking to the only true help he has. His eyes Look for the God who made the heavens and the earth because this God is the one who sees. As the old spiritual goes, his eyes are on the sparrow and I know he watches me. But notice how he, he looks to God. It's with the eyes of a servant. This is someone who doesn't look to God as an equal or is expecting a handout like a petulant or spoiled child or who is outraged that God has allowed this suffering to happen to him. He looks as a servant who is dependent on God. As much as we are called the sons and daughters of God, we are also called his servants too. And to be a servant or a living sacrifice, as Paul talks about it in Romans 12, is, well, it's to be treated like a servant by the world. And we'd like to be princely sort of servants, like how the Pope is the first of servants, but he's also pretty much a king too. And I mean, if I'm being honest too, I mean, my job as a pastor is very comfortable in this life. But often when God calls us to be his servants, even as members of his family, the world says, great, we're going to treat you like Donald Holloway. And of course, Jesus, by his own practices, made that clear to us. Jesus, the Son of God, took the form of a servant, dying the death reserved for traitors and slaves out of his love for the world and taught his disciples to do the same. That's why when Jesus washed his disciples' feet in John 13, they were scandalized by it. This work was, was for the lowest of the low. And yet Jesus, the Son of God, the one through whom and for whom all things were made, the King of kings and Lord of lords, stripped down to his underwear and washed his disciples' nasty feet. And they were nasty. This is what a princely servant actually looks like. 
Jesus didn't come to insist on his power and authority. He came to be a servant, serving both his father and his people and the world. And he has given us the privilege of following in his footsteps. And that's how the psalmist sees himself too. It's like what New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner once remarked. He said, you know, it is amazing to me that Paul can say, I became a Jew to Jews. But he was a Jew. He was a Jew. His fundamental identity was not Jewish then, but Christian. Christian. It would be like if I said, I became an American to Americans, or a white Southerner to white Southerners. And by the way, I really am a white Southerner born that way, who thinks I was called to minister to people just like us, even as I often feel out of accord with the very culture I was raised in. You see, our fundamental identity is not racial or Southern or American, and those things are fine. Those things are fine, but they aren't primarily who we are. Our primary identity is Christian. We are defined by another. We are in union with Christ. We were set apart to be like him to share in his sufferings, to be a servant who is in submission to his God for the sake of the life of the world. But again, this sounds great on paper. I mean, it just rolls off the tongue as good theology. I mean, who among us would say, no, 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 I don't think I should look to God for my strength. No, and I definitely don't want to be thought of as a servant. No, we, we know what the right answers are and what we're supposed to say. We know how the sermons are supposed to go. And it's not until we endure suffering or endure prolonged contempt or are knocked out of our well-worn past that it becomes a real question for us. It's like what Scott Sauls is fond of saying. He says, you know, it becomes real for us when people actually treat us like servants, like how they treated Christ. The psalmist knows that this life is not all there is, that we are disciples on a pilgrimage learning the ways of God, but when the rubber meets the road, it is hard to live like this. The life Jesus has given to us is beautiful. It's beautiful. And I, I don't think I highlight that enough. It's beautiful. It is beautiful, this incredible calling to holiness and faithfulness. It is actually a beautiful thing in something that we don't treasure or value nearly enough. But it's also hard. You know, so often Christians want this life to be easy. I know I do, but it's not. And I think we need to reckon with that. And that takes us to the word hands. The psalmist says that he looks to his God who is enthroned in heaven like a servant looks to the hand of his master. Now that means at least two things. First, it means that he looks to God to provide all things for him. So not just his food or his home or his money, all things. So your relationships, your children, your work, everything, including the very air we are breathing right now, it all comes from God's hand. And we get the sense of how this works by Jesus' own practice of going to God in prayer about everything. Everything. You would think that Jesus needed nothing. I mean, after all, he's the one through whom and for whom all things were made, as Paul says. And yet we get a very different picture with his own life. With Jesus, we see how a servant of God knows how much he needs his God and depends on him by how much he prayed. You know, if you want to know how dependent you are on God, how much you understand yourself as a servant, 
Just look at how often you pray. Now, theoretically, we all know this is something important and something we should do, and we believe that. But practically or experientially, it's not something many Christians do often, or if we're being honest with our own lives, something we do at all. And the issue isn't so much an issue of frequency, as in, listen, I've prayed 10 times today and had a quiet time. How about that? No, no, no. Perhaps the better question is, when and why have you prayed? If you've prayed at all. You know, as an aside, it is very easy not to pray. You know, if you find that you haven't prayed much lately or at all, that's not unique to you. It's just not. That's many, many Christians. My daily temptation as I sit in that office is not to seek God at all, even as I'm preparing to teach his word. It's like what G.K. Chesterton once said, and this is a paraphrase. Do you pray before a meal? Good. And by the way, it's good to teach your kids to do this, and it's often a precious moment to have the youngest you know, pray a cute prayer before a family meal, but honestly, adults often have kids do this because they'd rather not lead themselves. Parents, don't pass off the opportunity to lead your family to the throne room of God even before meals. It's a privilege. Do you pray before looking at your phone or turning on the TV? or driving your car, or meeting with someone, or going to your in-law's house? Do we not need God in all those situations too, or do we think we're strong enough to handle it? You know, I once heard Stanley Harawa say that, that one of the great benefits of prayer is learning to wait upon God. It's learning to be still and be patient upon his provision and timing. See, prayer moves the focus away from what I can do to what God can do. That's why it's so difficult in my office. It moves us away from being gods to ourselves and to centering on God as God. It's why prayer is so hard for many of us because, you know, I know I need to pray. I'm not saying anything that none of you, you all agree. We all need to pray. And I tend to rush in with a bunch of words and fill the silence of my mind as opposed to waiting in silence and giving my mind and my heart over to him. It's so difficult, it's so uncomfortable to just sit and wait. And having a phone has made this all that much harder because I'd rather be distracted than spend even just five minutes silently waiting on God. The thing is, prayer does not need to be complicated, it's just not. It can be as simple as praying a psalm, like Psalm 23. Pray it back to God. Just read it out loud and say, Lord, may this be true of me. Or the Lord's Prayer. There's a reason we do it every single week. Jesus taught this. Use it. Or just go read Deuteronomy 6. It'll give you an idea. Or just simply, here I am, Lord. I am yours. And that's the second thing I want to point out about that word, hands. You know, a servant of God will wait. Will wait for God to act. Servants don't take up their own agendas. They wait for their master's instructions. It's like what Psalm 130 says. I wait for the Lord. 
My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Just think about that image. What do watchmen do? They wait, and they watch, and that's it. Their job in the dead of night is waiting and watching for the sun to rise. The, might, the night might you know, fly by, or it might feel like it lasts forever, but they know the sun will rise, and so they wait, and they watch for it. And this might arguably be the hardest thing for us to do. You know, it's why my public prayers can sound, what's a good phrase for it? Church appropriate, right? Pastor appropriate. And I'm most often just reading a psalm. That's what I'm doing. I cannot improve upon what the biblical writers have already done. And today's prayer of adoration, for example, was Psalm 36. But in my inner private prayers, I'm disconnected and disjointed. I want to get on to doing something else, something that feels more real or more tangible or like I'm actually doing something. So take for an example of what not to do via King Asa of, of Judah. In 2 Chronicles 14, it says that he was a good king who followed God. When he was threatened by Zerah, the Ethiopian, who had an army of a million men, which was uh, gigantic by even modern standards, what did Asa do? He cried out to God to defend his people and defeat this huge army. He prayed, and that's exactly what happens. But you fast forward 36 years to the end of Asa's reign, and he's threatened again, but now it's Baasha of, of the northern kingdom of Israel. And this time, instead of going to God, he takes silver and gold out of the temple treasury as a bribe to Ben-Hadad, who was an ally to Baasha in the hopes of buying his help in defense of the city. In other words, he just did status quo politics. Frankly, it's what some Christians have hoped to do with politicians in this country. And as an aside, Ben-Hadad means it's a version of son of Baal. So in other words, instead of going to God like he did when he was a young king, Asa steals from God and gives the money to the son of Baal to protect him. And you know what? Initially it works. That's the whole thing. These things initially often work. Ben-Hadad conquers several cities in Israel, and Baasha is forced to retreat. But these things come with consequences, and it ultimately ends with, with Asa dying. So instead of waiting on the Lord, as the kings were supposed to do, instead of seeing God as his mountain, like what Psalm 125 might say, or like what we confessed earlier, he looked to the hills, making political deals that he thought would fix his situation. And we get it. We get it. When a gigantic army is at your door, doesn't it seem a tad reckless to go pray about? I mean, can't you just hear his advisor saying, what, you want to pray? Yeah, pray on your own time or, or get the Levites to do it. You're the king. You gotta do something, anything. Pray later, man. We, we've gotta act right now. Don't be distracted from reality by Prayer seems so foolish, you know, so utterly irrelevant and useless in the midst of a crisis, or even just in the doldrums of a normal day. But as Peter Lightheart said, the reason it seems that way is because sin makes you stupid, and it makes what is one of the most important things we should do 
one of the least attractive and most neglected practices to us. And yet God has invited us into his throne room and says, you have access to me. Sin makes the idea of waiting on God in prayer, of just quietly, even silently sitting still, sound like the dumbest thing you could do. You feel foolish doing it even, when in fact it is the best thing you can do, as modeled by Jesus. Sin makes the ways of the world seem like wisdom and savviness, when in reality it's foolishness that leads to more pain, suffering, and death. So how long does the servant wait upon God till God has mercy on him? That's the final word. Sometimes mercy means forgiveness of our sins, and we should daily turn to God in confession and repentance and seek his mercy for our sins, and he is, thank God, promised to forgive. But sometimes mercy means deliverance from the pain and suffering that we're enduring, whatever that may be. You know, so when someone is in the midst of a crisis and asks for prayer, they're asking us to intercede for them that God might deliver them from what is hurting them right then and there. That's what the psalmist is after too. He wants God to deliver him from the contempt he and his people have endured for a long time, for a long time from powerful people. Now, the obvious question is, how long? When will God show his mercy? You know, sometimes God acts very quickly, delivering us from a crisis right in the nick of time, and maybe you've experienced that a time or two. I mean, just yesterday, the water pump on our new car went out. And as frustrating as that is, and that's a bill I don't want to pay, we are thankful it did not happen on the road away from home, especially coming from Florida on a Friday. That's a small mercy. It's a small deliverance. You know, sometimes God delivers us, but he does so slowly like Joseph in Egypt who unjustly spent years and years in prison. And sometimes he allows us to die without seeing justice at all, like John the Baptist. You know, either in this life or the next, and he does show us mercy in this life. I mean, we know him. God has promised us mercy. That's non-negotiable for God. And whether we live or die, we have life with him now and forever. And it's what makes enduring pain and suffering bearable. If there was no hope for the future past death, it is not bearable. It just isn't. And it's not because we are strong or have unshakable convictions that we can endure. It's not. It's because God has promised us that whatever we are enduring will not last forever, and he is with us in it. Now, again, the temptation is to think that our pain must not matter very much to God, or else he'd do something about it right now. But it does. It does. Your suffering is precious to God. You know, Jesus, who bore our sin shame, suffering, and misery. He was not detached from it. He wasn't a stoic. He endured through tears. Just go through the Gospels and see how often Jesus cried. He endured through tears, looking to his Father for strength. And he knows what it is to long for deliverance and not receive it in the moment. Pain and suffering are often things God uses 
to teach us to cling ever tighter to him. And as much as I'd rather it not be the case, it works so much better for our hearts than pleasure ever does. I mean, think of it this way. Paul saw incredible things of God. Incredible things of God. But it was the thorn in his flesh that taught him that God's grace was sufficient for him. And God refused to remove that thorn. Everyone here is suffering in some way. All of us here are enduring with with some sin, some broken relationship, some anxiety, or loneliness, or addiction, or something we'd rather not have to admit. And whatever it is, it reveals our weakness and our need. In the midst of, of your sin, let me say that again. In the midst of your sin, and your shame, and your suffering, your God is not distant. He is not far off. He is right here with you in the midst of it. He knows you, he sees you, he hears you. He has not forgotten you and will never forsake you. There is deliverance in the morning because the sun will come. His eye is on the sparrow. So let us wait on him and watch for it because we're his servants. Let me pray for us. Lord, I think as, as, as Americans, it's so hard. It's, it's hard for me to not see that this life is all there is, but it's not. Time goes by so slowly and yet so quickly at the same time. And I pray for all of us here that even in our weakness, which we all are, that you would grow us in our conviction that you are our God, that you are good, that you are long-suffering, that you have what's best for us in mind, that you will not let us go, that indeed the best life is the life yet to come. Give us the strength to endure. May our Savior be with us in the midst of this. May your Spirit build us up in faith, hope, and love, because you, O God, are worth it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.